0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden.
1: And I'm Kevin McLenathan. With still plenty of time on our hands, Wade, I'm really looking forward to starting up another series with you this week. It's gonna be a good one.
0: Yeah, we had a fantastic South Korean movie marathon this last month, and this month, we're actually gonna be moving back over the english language
1: that's right wade last week listeners may remember that we asked them for their opinions on which directors with new releases coming out this year they wanted a retrospective on we'll be sharing the results of
0: that poll and kicking things off this week in just a minute we've got exciting stuff planned on this episode episode 244 of seeing and believing Yes, listeners, we are here with episode 244. Kevin, we mentioned the fun we had on our South Korean movie marathon. We're kind of shifting gears a bit, but we're moving into a different marathon or a series. And listeners who follow us on Twitter or maybe some individuals who are part of the Christ and Pop Culture members-only Facebook group, they know what we're talking about when we mention a poll. We had a very special poll, Kevin, and we asked our listeners which director we should hop into for this next series, and I feel like we gave them four really great choices.
1: Yeah, that's right. I'm looking forward to seeing the new work from all four of these directors. We gave them the choice between Wes Anderson, Christopher Nolan, Kelly Reichert, and David Fincher. They are all coming out with new movies in 2020. In Kelly Reichert's case, that new movie has actually technically been released, but Things tend to happen when the virus shutdown hits, so we made sure to include her in this poll. And it was actually a really close <laughs> poll, Wade, like yeah. um, some some real squeakers here. Uh, there's only 13% difference between the number one and the number four, and uh, I don't know, it's, it's pretty close, so... Uh, Bringing up the rear at uh, 19%, we had David Fincher. Kelly Reichert beat him out by uh, 1% at 20%. Then we had Wes Anderson clocking in at 29% of the vote. And, of course, maybe not to too many people's surprise, the blockbuster filmmaker Christopher Nolan won it with 32%. But here's the thing, Wade. (laughs) While we were reading people's comments and defenses... For why they're voting for this or that director we, we ran into kind of an interesting problem
0: Yeah, okay, so there was a problem Kevin So many people gave us great reasons to pick all of these directors So we had arguments for Fincher that were great Arguments for Kelly Riker that were great Arguments for Wes Anderson and Christopher Nolan that were great And so we started thinking about this and we realized that as the hosts, we should also carry a little bit of weight. We carry some votes as well. People depend on us. Uh, So we went ahead, and I I don't know if people are going to feel stilted or what. We decided to change the rules up a bit. And we decided to spend one episode on each of those filmmakers. So we're going to work through their filmography. Uh, We're going to begin with Christopher Nolan, and we're going to actually rank their films in each episode so it's going to be exciting first we got Nolan this week next week we're going to rank the films of Kelly Reichert then we have David Fincher the week after that and then we close things down with a crowd favorite if you've heard of him Kevin Wes Anderson I think it's going to be a lot of fun
1: Yeah, and I'm really, you know, it's funny that we just didn't think of this to begin with. Like, why would we exclude talking about three other filmmakers just to talk about a single one when all four of them are worthy of discussion? And especially after reading all those comments from our listeners, it it just didn't feel right to say, well, you know, Christopher Nolan beat out... Wes Anderson by three percentage points so you know we're just not going to talk about Wes Anderson at all just didn't feel right so I'm glad that we kind of settled on this solution and hey it means we get to uh, watch more great films from these really <laughs> talented filmmakers
0: so I'm not complaining yeah I mean it is it's like you said we were we were talking about the poll and we we're like hey wh- why don't we just talk about all of them and why didn't we think of this before? Why did we need to go to our listeners uh, and ask if you want to talk about these great filmmakers? They're, they're going to say yes. They want to talk about all of them. They want us to, to you know, rattle on about their filmography. So I'm, I'm excited. And I think this episode uh, is actually especially exciting because we're talking about Christopher Nolan. With Christopher Nolan's 11th film, Tenet, gearing up for what we hope is a July release, Kevin and I were taking a look back at the filmography of one of the world's most popular filmmakers. Emerging on the scene in 2000 with the breakout thriller Memento, which is actually his second film, his follow-up to Following, Nolan firmly cemented his status as a twisty psychological storyteller with a flair for the uncommon. After making the Al Pacino Robin Williams starring Insomnia in 2002, Nolan would be snatched up to reboot the Batman franchise, and well, the rest is history. So, what makes a Nolan film a Nolan film? We're gonna talk about that, but for starters, Nolan enjoys a good technical challenge. He prizes large, bold images, and his films seem to shout big screen. His stories are often non-linear, In almost all of his movies, he takes a plot and chops it up in order to emphasize something. What is that something? Well, it just might be time itself. Nolan is obsessed with the nature of time. The characters in his films are interested in the philosophical implications of their actions, and throughout this journey, Nolan keeps us on a string by only giving audiences limited information about the plot. We've got to work to figure the rest out. Kevin, we've got a lot to get through on this episode. We're going to rank all 10 of Christopher Nolan's films. So I'd like to ask you one question before we get started. In a single word, could you describe to us what you think about Nolan as a filmmaker. Now, don't worry. You're going to get to explain yourself soon. But for now, when you conjure up Christopher Nolan, the filmmaker, the myth, the legend, Michael Caine's son, no, when you conjure up Christopher <laughs> Nolan, what single word comes to mind? Oh, see,
1: this this was actually harder for me than I thought it would be because I feel like... I, I've watched all of his films, most of them multiple times. I feel like I know him pretty well. He was probably uh, when I was first getting into film, he was uh, a filmmaker that I, you know, I liked quite a bit and uh, had a lot of appreciation for pretty much right off the bat. I've been I've been a Nolan fan since Memento, you know, like before Batman, before he became synonymous with heady blockbuster filmmaking. Uh, you know, I was, I was on board the Nolan train, so to speak. So I was kind of surprised that coming up with a single word to summarize him was a little bit more difficult than I anticipated. I ended up settling on the word clockwork. And what I mean by that is it's not an adjective, which galls me a little bit, but I couldn't quite find an adjective that fit the, the sense that I was, that I was trying to go for in summing him up. When I say clockwork, I mean that his films are, they're, they're constructed to a T and sometimes they're, they're really intricately destruct constructed. Sometimes they're not intricate so much. as just, there's a lot in them. There's a lot of ideas. Uh, Nolan has obviously really challenged himself to take on uh, technical and storytelling challenges as well. I'm thinking of you know Dunkirk and its three pronged structure that you know it does really interesting things with time. It's not. It is an intricate film, but even more than that, it's just something that has obviously had a lot of thought and care going into exactly how it's put together, how it's plotted and how its themes are revealed to the audience. So that's kind of the best I could do. I thought about Cerebral a little bit, but Nolan is, he's a blockbuster filmmaker. He's a good, he's an entertainer. I don't know if Cerebral was the right fit. So Clockwork is the the best I could do. I'm curious to turn this question back around (laughs) on you, Wade, and unfairly ask you to sum up an entire body of work. In just one word. Uh,
0: you know, I think that's a great word. I, I'm almost jealous that I did not think of it first. You know, you you mentioned Nolan and when you first watched some of his work and the impression that made on you. I was, I was 13 when Memento came out. I was 15 when Insomnia came out and very much interested in film at that point. And Nolan was just, I don't know, he was just the guy. And whenever he made Batman Begins, I I heard about it. I think a couple years before it was released, and I would tell people, Hey, you, you know, the the guy that was in the Newsies and American Psycho is Batman in <laughs> a film that's directed by the guy who did Memento and Insomnia. And people are like, What are you What are you talking? About? It's a Batman film, okay? Uh, and just just really excited about his work, and he 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 infused this love of just of just cinema, and so I was trying to distill this down to a single word, and, and the one word I kept coming to was just excitement, and when I say excitement, it's a very personal reflection because Nolan makes me excited about cinema. Any time that he releases a film, I get excited about what film can do and what it can mean and what it, what it means to me and how it makes me feel whenever I watch his work. So excitement is, uh, is a word to describe him, and hopefully I'll kind of work through that and some other words to describe him as we go through this list. Listeners, we're going to jump on in, and here's how we're going to do it. To kind of save time, I'm going to start at number 10, and I'm going to work my way down to number one. And as I name a film, Kevin will respond by saying where that film lands on his list. So hypothetically speaking, my number 10 on Nolan's filmography could be his number one. Now, it's it's not, but uh, we'll kind of work through it that way. And, Kevin, my number 10 is actually Nolan's first feature film. It's from 1998. It's called Following. Now, Following is about a young writer who spends his day following strangers through the streets of London. He hopes to gain inspiration for his next work by observing these individuals one thing leads to another, and, well, the situation becomes a bit hairy. I think this is a, a, a good story. I think this is an interesting story. Every once in a while, you'll watch something from Christopher Nolan, and you're like, oh, there, there's there's a Hitchcockian flair there. And I think we get that in the following. I don't know if the characters are compelling enough for me uh, in this project for it to climb up my list, but I appreciate how it offers us a glimpse of Nolan's soon-to-be trademark flourishes. And I'm talking about the nonlinear storytelling that he employs here, and then also these philosophical musings about the nature of right and wrong. And we're going to come back to that. But Nolan is obsessed with the decision-making process. What makes something right and what makes it wrong? And he definitely explores... Uh, different moral philosophies. And it's fascinating to see in this picture, uh, this kind of gritty black and white feature, uh, these characters think through uh, what it means to make right and wrong decisions. So that's my number 10, Kevin, is following.
1: Yeah, uh, I have following at number eight. And uh, I I like this film. And I think what's... What's interesting about it is, I guess, going back to your intro, you mentioned that one thing that Nolan, that you see in a lot of Nolan's work, is the obsession with time, the way that he jumbles the chronology in his films, the way that his characters are often really focused on uh, the past or the, the passage of time. Um, for me, I think one of the thematic interests that I, that I see popping out at me in Nolan's films a lot is the theme of what you mentioned in your synopsis for following the the, the theme of right and wrong and how our moral sense is affected uh, by uh, the lies that we tell ourselves or perhaps the the ways that we justify our our actions to ourselves can shape not just our morality but also just, ourselves as people. It can uh, change our entire way of life depending on the, the moral choices we choose and whether we're honest with ourselves about the way that we live and the choices that we make. And I think that following... Is working in a mode that I, I kind of wish Nolan would get back to a little bit more. It's, it's a noir. Uh, it's a very you know, jumbled chronology noir, but at base it's kind of it's a very noirish picture. It's shot in that black and white. And I think Nolan does really well with that kind of that, that mode of storytelling, that genre. The, the voiceover, the morally ambiguous protagonist, the the sense that. All, so many of his characters are kind of out to to get something for themselves, whatever that might be. It's it's not often money. Usually, it's more like self actualization or um, feeling, you know, the expiation of guilt or something. But I feel like that fits really snugly into the film noir genre. And I think that following is obviously as a first film, it's a little unpolished, but it's got that kind of. Nolan ingredient to it that I think I find in his best films and that I would really love to see him return to.
0: Yeah, and he definitely operates in this noir element. And I don't know if if the average film goer notices that or remembers that about him because he has gotten away from that a bit. And and I'm cool with that because I, I like all of his films. Um, but it is fascinating to see him operate in that mode here and following, and it also uh, continues in my number nine film, and and we're getting into we're getting into sticky territory because I really like all of these movies. So if I'm grading on a five star scale everyone from this number nine up is at least four stars and above. I just really appreciate Nolan as a filmmaker. And number nine is the 2002 Insomnia. So this is a a cat-and-mouse psychological thriller. Both Al Pacino, who plays a police officer investigating the murder of a teenage girl in Alaska, and Robin Williams, who plays the killer, are both detectives in their own way. And we get this great relationship between the two, there's one scene that I'm thinking of in particular, and I actually just watched this film again this past weekend. They're on a, a ferry boat, and these characters are talking to each other, and there's this long take with a pull in between the characters, and they're kind of devising a plan to get themselves out of a sticky situation. And you get the sense that both characters are are playing each other. I appreciate the action sequences here. I know a lot of people will point out the chaotic nature of Nolan's action sequences, but I think they work like gangbusters in many of his films, and I think they do here. It's almost anarchy, in a sense. We get this great log scene where Al Pacino is chasing Robin Williams' uh, on these logs that are floating down the river. And it's just, it really is a chaotic scene, a frightening scene. But going back to the nature of good and evil, we're in this Alaskan town and it does not get dark during this time of the year. And that seems to be a really good metaphor for the story. What happens when there doesn't seem to be any distinction between day and night, particularly with Al Pacino's character and Robin Williams? Now, you know that Al Pacino is a good person at heart, but he's made some morally ambiguous decisions, and he is forced to reckon with the fallout of those Decisions, And at one point, he says, the ends justify the means, right? And for someone who's accused, as Nolan often is, of thinking with his head rather than his heart, he, he's very much concerned with exploring the dangers of utilitarianism, uh, this moral framework of uh, the ends do kind of justify the means, uh, if I'm putting it correctly. And we see him exploring that in this film and saying, no, that's actually not right. And we see that kind of carry over into other films, including um, The Dark Knight. But I really like Insomnia, but um, yeah, number nine on my list.
1: Yeah, I have Insomnia all the way at number five, which I didn't quite expect it to be this high when... I first started remaking my list. I had I made a ranked list of all of Nolan's films uh, a couple of years ago and Insomnia was a little bit lower and some other films were a bit higher, but the the more I think about Insomnia, the more I think that it's it's it does kind of get a little bit of a of a bad rap simply because it is a remake of the 1997 Norwegian film by the same title starring Stellan Skarsgård which is it's a superior film um it's it's better than the Nolan's remake there's uh no point in really uh, pretending otherwise but i do think it's a very strong film in its own right and maybe a, a slightly fumbled climax aside like the, the action climax isn't best but isn't the best but i think that there's so much to recommend this film from the some of the suspense sequences that you mentioned i think this is low-key one of al pacino's better performances i think he's Excellent in this film, uh, just playing the 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 exhaustion, both physical and moral, of this detective who who does a bad thing and then is struggling with his impulse to uh, try to skirt the issue or avoid the repercussions of that, while it, in the name of justice, while also reckoning with the fact that that's not really how morality. Works and I, I think Pacino plays that perfectly. Robin Williams is incredibly effective as a murderer and an all-around bad guy. But the way Williams plays it is so, so muted and very like he's just kind of a normal person in this film. And I think that that makes the uh, his his evil that much more chilling and it also really calls into sharper relief Pacino's dilemma which is the fact that if you're basically a good person can you kind of get away with doing a bad thing every now and then like is is, is there some way to finesse that in a in a moral sense and I think that's a really compelling uh, issue for Nolan to be bringing up in this film and I think that it's one of his films that just kind of gets forgotten about, but that is a little unjust. I think it's it's really strong.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's very strong, and you know, strong enough to help get him the job for Batman Begins. And I'm I'm going to move on. Batman Begins is not at my number eight, but another Batman film is, and that's the 2012 The Dark Knight Rises. So we go from insomnia. The only film that Christopher Nolan did not write that he has directed, Uh, we go from there to, I think, probably his weakest film from a screenplay perspective. I like this movie a lot. I think it's, it's very entertaining. I think it's very strong. But there are some plot elements that just don't click the way they should. But what does grab me are some of the big ideas in this film, the scope of this film, and really the ambition. Nolan might hit a double or a single with this film, but he's aiming for the fences. He's trying to go out strong. And uh, this movie, I don't know, it it just has atmosphere. I appreciate very much Tom Hardy as Bane in this picture. Uh, It's got a great cast in addition to the figures that we've already seen in Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. and I saw this probably a year ago, the last time, and it was on TV. And it's one of those that if it's on TV, you just you got to see it through. You've got to watch it. I think the inn stumbles a bit. Uh, there's this big fight scene in front of, I think it's City Hall, and uh, I don't know if that works super well. But overall, a... A, a pretty entertaining picture and um, it's one that I was glad to, to be able to see in theaters and, you know, I'll probably watch, you know, many, many more times here in the future.
1: Yeah. That's quite an understatement about the, uh, the climax, that <laughs> climactic battle. Wade, yeah, yeah. it's just, it's, it's a ludicrous <laughs> action sequence. Yeah. everything about it. it, which is a shame because I agree with you that the the first half of the dark knight rises and bane as as a character both as written and as acted by tom hardy is a very compelling villain and he's you know there it's it's a hard act to follow to go after heath ledger's performance as the joker in the dark knight but bane really does feel like a worthy follow up which is which is no small thing to say um I have this at my number 9 spot because it like you said it just the the wheels kind of fall off at the end and there's just contrivances and and implausibilities galore and and some g- odd decisions with the way that Nolan chooses to pay off some of his some of his plot threads um but there are also some really strong Uh, moments to this film. I think especially of the, the mid film fight sequence between Bane and Batman, the first time they meet and they fight and, you know, Batman gets his back broken and the way that Nolan shoots that it's, there's, there's no, uh, there's no music cues. uh, There's not a whole lot of really intricate choreography, fight choreography. It's just kind of two muscly guys just really, you know, punching each other and Nolan, in that way, makes you feel the the strain that they're the physical effort that they're going through, and also the pain that, uh, especially uh, Christian Bale's Batman, feels with every blow. Finally, there is no discussion of the Dark Knight Rises that will be complete without singing the praises of Anne Hathaway's Catwoman, which is maybe my favorite. Uh, portrayal of Catwoman, I don't know. Michelle Pfeiffer is really great in Batman Returns, but I really like Anne Hathaway's performance in in this film. as just this really sly kind of kind of character. I I like her take on it a lot, and she might be the best thing of the entire movie. And we just need to recognize that before moving on.
0: <laughs> no, she she is she's really great in that film, and she's one of the people that I referring to in the new cast members that that join the movie. She adds this element to it. And it is a different performance than Michelle Pfeiffer because it is a different type of Batman movie. It's obviously much more grounded than anything that Tim Burton did in the Batman series. And I do appreciate it. I I I think the thing that frustrates me too about that final sequence is, or it's close to the final sequence, but it's kind of near the climax. You get this, uh, this build-up where Bruce Wayne, Batman, meets Bane for the first time. They have that big fight. And the idea is that Batman cannot rely simply on his physical abilities to defeat an individual like this. And then you get to the end where they're they're fighting in front of City Hall and it's just Physical abilities. It's just, it's just fighting, and and he, he just, he just tries harder.
1: He punches. Just, he just, he 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 just really grits his teeth and punches harder,
0: and and he wins because of that. He does. It's, it's a problem, and, and you know. Nolan tries to pull it back with the notion of sacrifice towards the end, but it just, yeah, it it just is not able to do it. But I, I, tell you, I, you know, we'll say all this, and then it's on TV, and I'm, you know, hypnotized for the next two hours, two and a half hours, um, because it's just such an entertaining film. I'm going to move on to my number seven, uh, a film that I really like. It's got some problems, but it's just a big movie, and that's 2014's Interstellar. Interstellar has its fair share of problems. Uh, Nolan's exposition-heavy, uh, sometimes confusing plot lines gets the better of him here. He also feels the need to underline his thesis. There's a line by Anne Hathaway in the film, and she says, Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that even if we can't understand it. I think I'm supposed to be saying that when I watch this movie. I don't think a character needs to tell me that. On the flip side, um, this is a beautiful film. This is a majestic film. And Christopher Nolan, I didn't mention this in the intro, but he relies as much as he can on practical effects. And you see that in this film. It really is something to behold. And as I'm thinking about this movie... I, I'm really starting to believe that it's probably Nolan's least pessimistic film. Humanity figures it out. We've got problems, but we fix those problems. He really is trying to say something about love and how love transcends all, and how love can, and how love can correct uh, the past. And also saying that I, I think Matthew McConaughey's Cooper. Is one of the few leading characters, m- maybe outside of Bruce Wayne, who is not morally ambiguous to some extent. So it's saying something. It, it, it makes uh, Interstellar uh, an interesting watch inside of Nolan's filmography.
1: Murph is a great kid. She's really bright, but she's been having a
0: little trouble lately. She brought this in to show the other students the section on the lunar landings.
2: Yeah, it's one of my old textbooks. She always loved the pictures.
0: It's an old federal textbook. We've replaced them with the corrected versions. Corrected? Explaining how the Apollo missions were fake to bankrupt the Soviet Union.
2: You don't believe we went to the moon?
0: I believe it was a brilliant piece of propaganda that the Soviets bankrupted themselves, pouring resources into rockets and other useless machines.
2: Useless machines?
0: And if we don't want a repeat of the excess and wastefulness of the 20th century, then we need to teach our kids about this planet, not tales of leaving it.
2: You know, one of those useless machines they used to make was called an MRI. And if we had any of those left, the doctors would have been able to find the cyst in my wife's brain before she died instead of afterwards. And then she'd have been the one sitting there listening to this instead of me, which had been a good thing because she was always the the calmer one.
1: Oh, I, I I'm gonna have to quibble with you that Bruce Wayne is not morally ambiguous but uh, well, that might I be mean, more of a problem with
0: he he, he he walks on the line a bit but but maybe not I don't know i I, I guess it's it's not like the guy in memento right it's uh but that's seems yeah the other.
1: well I, I I mean I guess to be fair part of the problem the problem part of the problem with the Batman movies is that I think Christopher Nolan wants to interrogate Batman's morality but doesn't really Really go all the way in doing that, so that might be an overall problem with the franchise. But that's neither here or there. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just in a quibbling mood because Interstellar is all the way down at my number ten. Wow! And it's it's the <laughs> yeah, it's the and it's the only Nolan movie that I I just think just doesn't work for me. And this is it, it's it's a difficult thing to put my finger on why it doesn't work because there is so much. Uh, cinematic grandeur that Nolan marshals in service of the story. The soundtrack is is incredible. I think that there's a lot of a lot he does right with his filmmaking here, but it just left me cold. And the obviousness of the way that he uh, lays out his themes, I just think is is a little amateurish. And it's it's weird because. A lot of the criticisms I would level at Interstellar, I have also leveled at Ad Astra from James Gray, you know, last year. And yet, when I think about it, I would happily watch Ad Astra again, and I don't think I ever really have any desire to watch Interstellar <laughs> again. And I'm still, when I thought of that while putting together my list, I was like, why? what is it about Interstellar that doesn't work for me, whereas Ad Astra does? And I think it's just, there's too much... In Interstellarly, it's just it's overstuffed. It's maybe a little bit bloated for me, and I think that might be the problem with the film. And and maybe the problem with some of Nolan's less successful pictures is just he w- he has so many ideas he wants to fit into his film, and his films don't often sometimes aren't able to support that kind of kind of weight. So. It's definitely a subjective line, but I, I have to have Interstellar all the way at the bottom. One of the films had to be there, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that is surprising. I, I have seen Interstellar twice, I think. And I, I think the second time I watched it, I liked it better. But the problems were also a little more obvious. So it is it is kind of a strange effect that the film had on me. But I, I still really do like it. I probably talked more about the issues than um, the things that I love about the movie. But I, I, I do like it. Uh, I'll say this, Kevin. If that if you had a problem with Interstellar, the next movie that uh, Christopher Nolan made, I think he stripped all of those things out. Um, we'll probably talk about that one a little later. Uh, next, I'm going to get to number six, and it's his 2000 film, Memento. Uh, this is really strong, and I, I can see how people will make arguments that this is his strongest film from a storytelling perspective. Uh, I think part of it landing at number six for me is maybe just its rewatchability. But like Inception, Memento is concerned with the way that we bend reality in order to escape trauma. And we were talking about that neo-noir setting in some of his earlier films, and, and we get that here in Memento. If you were to unspool Memento's story, I really don't think it's all that complicated. But Nolan, through this non-linear storytelling, finds a way to chop up this film, to move this film around, and he emphasizes themes like regret and grief. And we see that same approach in many of Nolan's films, especially Dunkirk, a pretty straightforward story that's chopped up to help us understand the ideas he's working with. Uh, this is a fantastic film, and don't think me putting it at number six is any indication that it's weak at all. It is a really strong picture. Uh, so, number six, Memento. Oh, all right. Oh, where am I?
2: Somebody's bedroom. Oh, must be her room. But who's she?
1: I definitely agree with you about its its strength. It's all the way at my number one. I I love Memento. I think it's easily Nolan's strongest film. And it's a personal favorite of mine just overall. I think it's um just the the structure makes what could otherwise be a pretty straightforward noir revenge story into something really special, I think, and for me, what co- keeps me coming back to this film over and over is something else I see in uh, a, a lot of Nolan films, which is that his films are kind of about will like he, the so many of his characters they they try to will themselves into. Uh, into something that shouldn't necessarily be possible. So, for instance, in Inception, it's all about uh, planting ideas and and having control over the thoughts of others and over one's own thoughts and mistakes. Uh, In The Prestige, there's this whole uh, theme surrounding the idea of becoming the best at what you do and achieving mastery over your craft is something that you achieve through sheer focus, and nothing is more important than achieving that kind of mastery. And I think Memento, it maybe represents the fullest fruition of that idea, which is the, the fact that this protagonist that we follow throughout the entire film we slowly come to realize he's willing to do anything even lie to himself and even live a lie if it means that he he gets to be happy there's a quote from joe pantolino's character towards the end of the film where he talks about how in a lot of ways the main character leonard shelby is living the dream he's got a dead wife to pine for he's got a puzzle that he can endlessly solve for himself and he's always got A revenge quest, something to focus on that is sort of an encapsulation of everything that's wrong with his life. He can live the dream because that's a a part of his life that he can just endlessly work over, go through, and obsess over. And in the world of this film, that's, that's living the dream. That is exactly... What so many of Nolan's characters want is just to be able to shape their reality to the point where their pet obsessions are the only thing that matters. And I think the way that Memento is able to treat that subject in a way that is both very stylish and very interesting just from a storytelling and filmmaking standpoint, but also there's an undercurrent of tragedy that develops... Uh, over the course of this film, and having watched it as many times as I have, those undercurrents of tragedy grow stronger and stronger with every with every viewing. This is essentially a story about a man who lives a lie willingly because that's the only way he knows to be happy, and it's uh, it's a really great, interesting, moody thriller.
0: Yeah, and it's it's really fantastic how it explores the idea of revenge, and you're you know you mentioned this how revenge obviously it it doesn't give us the the need that we want um but the pursuit of revenge feels good and so what this character does is this character just pursues revenge endlessly in order to capture that feeling and when he's let down he just starts the process over and um yeah just a fantastic film and um yeah, what a great—I mean, you watch this and you say, yeah, we know why Christopher Nolan became such a big deal after this film uh, because of how well-crafted it is. Listeners, that is the first half of our Christopher Nolan walkthrough. Kevin, I kind of feel bad uh, because I made you spill the beans on your number one film already, but you're going to have a chance to go first next week. So hopefully, I don't know, you'll return the favor. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it's totally fine, and I I'm always happy to exhort you to bring Memento higher. So, hey, we
0: we do this next week. Memento will probably be higher. I don't. know. It's just it's the way that the wind carries us from week to week. Listeners, we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to talk through the rest of Christopher Nolan's films. I think you're going to enjoy it. Don't go anywhere.
2: Talk to me like I'm a child Take me somewhere soft and warm before I go crazy I can't believe life passed me by All of my memories were wasted trying to I believe that you let me grow out of my skin Where to begin? I thought that my heartbreaks would mean something more From just passing time So I made up my mind I'm just as unfulfilled and Bored as before
0: That song is Caught You Cold by South Fence. Listeners, we want to take an opportunity and thank all of you who have supported us via our Patreon campaign. When you do that, you keep our podcast going. We've got a number of different donation levels and we like to say that one is our favorite and that's the what can you buy for $5 level. Kevin, I was thinking about that this week. What could someone buy for 5 bucks?
1: Five bucks would get you a sombrero with Cheetos hanging off of it—a Cheetos sombrero. So if you're, you know, you've got those those little uh, dangling things from tassels along the rim, uh, these just—if you get hungry, you can just
0: pluck one of those Cheetos off and and pop it in the mouth. Keep on going with your day. I like that. I think that's I think that's great. And the cheese that gets stuck on your fingers is absolutely free. It's a bonus. <laughs> Yeah, the, that is uh,
1: one of the perhaps underrated experiences with Cheetos is the cheese dust. I don't actually believe what I'm saying right now. I, that, that is horrible, and there's a reason that it is free.
0: Well, it's even worse when you have little kids and they love Cheetos and they just get it everywhere. I don't wear white anymore, Kevin. I just wear orange because if I get Cheeto dust on me, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, blends in
1: for sure. That seems that seems like a smart
0: sartorial choice. <laughs> well, listeners, if the Cheeto dust is too much for you, you can always support us with your five bucks. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast.
1: Yeah. And another way you support us is just by interacting with us um, over social media. We like we always say on the show, we love hearing your thoughts and we love just kind of dialoguing with our listeners about what they're watching or hoping to watch, or things of that nature. Uh, In the uh, poll that we talked about, Wade, where we pitted those four directors against each other, we got some interesting conversation going. A lot of it uh, tended to revolve around, please don't do this or that director, but I really liked what Chris Williams had to say about David Fincher. He writes, Fincher is fascinating because he's got a great deal of diversity in his films, and I think certain films, like Seven, Fight Club, and Zodiac, really delve into some dark, troubling waters that are worth talking about. I think Seven grows on me more and more over the years. It's one of the few movies I've seen that truly horrified and disturbed me, yet refused to leave my brain. And I can second that emotion. Seven also
0: horrified and disturbed me, Wade. Yeah, it still horrifies and disturbs me it's been a couple years since i've seen it i'm gonna try to catch up with that movie if i can stand it before we talk about david fincher that's going to be in two weeks so week three of this series and i gotta say after nolan i think i'm most excited about the fincher podcast i think it's going to be a lot of fun i think there's going to be some great discussion
1: yeah, well, I know you, you're you a really big fan of Zodiac, so I'm sure that that's yeah. going to be high on your ranking whenever we get there. I, I have to say, Seven is a movie that I'm not necessarily looking forward to revisiting for the reasons that, that Chris mentioned mm. in his feedback. It's its definitely a well-made film, but its it's a tough watch for sure.
0: Well, when you already know what's in the box, it takes away some of the mystery, Kevin. Um,
1: (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Spoiler alert. We also heard from Christy Olson over on Twitter uh, in response to our poll. She was talking about Kelly Reichert's First Cow, and she writes, The inconsequential in the scheme of things but still disappointing thing about the pandemic I am thinking of today is that I will never get to see First Cow, my favorite animal, or Wendy, my favorite book, in theaters. She's talking, of course, about Ben Zeitlin's Wendy, director of Beasts of the Southern Wild, has a new movie coming out this year one that I'm really interested in checking out myself sadly the the pandemic has has no respect for the art of cinema so we'll just have to catch those as catch can
0: yeah and I I do wonder what a24 is gonna do with first cow you never know it might get a limited run um here's hoping that we'll be able to to check it out I also want to read a tweet from Lindsay Dunn. She responded to our episode that we posted last week about Secret Sunshine, and she says, I'm a new listener, enjoyed this episode, never seen the movie, but now plan to. That's a really great compliment. I always love hearing that. Someone recommended you because they heard I was a fan of the Movie Proposal podcast. I've not heard of that podcast, but I definitely want to check it out. And I really hope, Lindsay, that you like Secret Sunshine. I I loved it. I think that was my favorite film uh out of the marathon Kevin I, I I really do we talked about it last week I enjoyed the conversation I, I think it was number one for me
1: yeah it's probably number one for me too although man the housemaid was such a revelation I was really happy to have the chance to to see that finally but yeah Lindsay like Wade said we're we're we love hearing that uh listeners plan on checking out. Uh, new films and doing some exploration based on the show. That's that's probably the, the happiest you can make us, and so we're really glad that you found that meaningful, and welcome uh, to our community of listeners. It's always good to hear from new ones. We also heard from Andrew Bodenbach. Andrew is uh, one of our patrons, actually, and he writes in response to uh, a poll that we posted about our South Korean movie marathon He says, I'm just getting started on the marathon now, and I thought the discussion of mother was very good. I'm thankful for the extra motivation to see these films and a community to share them with. Well, Andrew and, and Lindsay can maybe uh, find each other over on Twitter and bond over their uh, newfound love for some of these South Korean movies. That's that's always great to hear. Thanks for the feedback, Andrew.
0: Yes, listeners, we appreciate all of your comments. If you'd like to email us, you can send us a note at Believing CAPC at gmail.com. Once again, that's Believing CAPC at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at Sea Belief Pod, at Sea Belief, P-O-D. Kevin, I don't know if our last segment was a dream within a dream because you put Interstellar <laughs> at number 10. Is, is that right or, or is it just a memory that's somehow embedded deep into my subconscious?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to give you a, a top and you can spin it and see if it tips over. Spoiler alert – It is going to tip over because this is reality, and yes, Interstellar is all the way at the bottom.
0: (laughs) If this is reality, why am I seeing double? That leads me to my number six. That was terrible. My number five, I should say. Uh, So my number five, Kevin, as we move forward in our Christopher Nolan countdown, is the 2006 film, The Prestige. This is a story of two rivaling magicians, Kevin. And it's best understood, I think, as an examination of obsession. What will we compromise uh, to get ahead? I still remember. Going and watching this movie in theaters and not necessarily feeling like my mind was blown, but just kind of enjoying or basking in the twisty storytelling here. It's a film that I like to revisit. I I really do appreciate the prestige. And... This also brings to mind one aspect that I love about Nolan's work. We all know that Nolan is a champion of the theatrical presentation. He wants people to come together in a big room and watch a film on a big screen. His films are also communal in that they generate a lot of conversation. And that struck me probably more than ever with the prestige and the great conversations that I had after I watched that film and not all the conversations are well let's figure out the plot let's figure out the details Uh, but many of the conversations were about some of the themes and and some of the ideas and so uh, that lands uh, prestige at number five film that I really do like
1: Uh, I really like it a lot as well I have it at my number three spot and uh I just I I think that in a lot of ways, this is uh one of Christopher Nolan's best, movie, or best movies. I mean, obviously, since it's at my number three, it's it is one of his best. There are certain aspects of the prestige that I think he simply never topped. I like that in terms of the film's structure, it kind of mirrors the the film's thematic aspect. Like watching the prestige for the first time is a lot like watching a magic trick. You you're not quite sure how Nolan is able to keep all these balls in the air. There's, you know, flashbacks within flashbacks. There's uh, you know, there's disguises, there's, you know, doubles, there's all sorts of stuff going on in this film. It's very complex from a structural and a narrative standpoint. And yet, you don't feel as lost watching this as you do like something like Inception. It's, it's so tightly constructed and Nolan seems to have such a a sure grasp of what he's trying to say in his story of these two magicians who are uh, trying to outdo each other and kind of outdo themselves sometimes literally uh, that it, is just a really strong example of what Nolan, when he's on his A-game, can really do with his very cerebral, thinky, complex narratives. I would have this film maybe at my number two or maybe even my number one if it weren't for the subplot with Scarlett Johansson's character, which is just, it seems a little bit underbaked. And in a film that otherwise seems to have a very... Uh, nuanced, very uh, clear role for the women in its story. I think of the uh, visual metaphor of the birds over the course of this film. The birds in cages, the birds used in magic tricks, the birds that uh, that sacrifice themselves for the magician's craft in this. So it's disappointing to see that uh, Scarlett Johansson's character just—it doesn't seem like Nolan really quite knows what to do with her in this picture, which is a shame because the rest of it is just so excellent.
0: Yeah, her character feels very uh, cold, uh, very clinical. Uh, it's a character that's written in but not necessarily explored. Uh, but yeah, I really like what you have to say about the prestige. It's just a, its just a tight film. And so many elements work well with this movie. My number four is actually the film that preceded the uh, the prestige on Nolan's filmography, and that's 2005's Batman Begins. And I think the reason it landed on number four is partly just because I really do love this movie. I think it's an entertaining picture. I'm a big fan of Batman and... Uh, it just seems to do a fantastic job of weaving together all of these Batman mythologies. And it's it really is a wonder how Nolan put together this film. Now, when we think about the Batman franchise, we usually think of first uh, The Dark Knight. And, and that is the better film. But Batman Begins is something that really set this character on the right course. And we're used to origin stories now. This is the first Batman movie, the first Batman film to actually show his his origin. And I recently heard this, I didn't actually even think about it, but the title card doesn't actually show up until the end of the movie because that is where Batman begins. And each of the Batman films in this series... Use the title as a description of what happens or what becomes Batman's reality at the end of the movie. He becomes the Dark Knight at the end of the Dark Knight. He rises at the end of Dark Knight Rises because he does become that symbol, and here he begins this is just a fantastic story. I like Liam Neeson here as Raza Ghoul Ghul and uh, Everything just pretty it just clicks and um, It's one of those movies that I watch over and over again because it's it's just a lot of fun Always mind your surroundings
2: <laughs>
0: Ninjutsu employs explosive powders As weapons
2: or distractions Theatricality and deception are powerful agents. You must become more than just a man in the mind of your opponent who was he? He was a farmer, and he tried to take his neighbor's land and became a murderer. Now he is a prisoner. What will happen to him? Justice. Crime cannot be tolerated. Criminals thrive on the indulgence of society's understanding.
1: You, you know, when you were saying your your synopsis of this film, you said this is the first this was the first time in movies where Batman's origin story was revealed. And I was like, that can't be right. That, you know, it's so much of a cliche now that every movie about Batman has to begin with his parents <laughs> getting shot in Crime Alley and all that happening. But then I remembered, no, wait, that's something that happened after Nolan, where it kind of became a cliche to have these superheroes where every single time their their franchise was rebooted. We had to sit through their origin story again. But that wasn't the case back in 2005 with Batman Begins. And I think about that. Opening sequence that we see in this film of Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne—he's kind of uh, off, finding himself in 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 kind of this grimy village. He's scrapping for his food. He's getting in fights. He's unkempt. He doesn't look like the billionaire playboy that we're all expecting. And Nolan, very very wisely, kind of just throws us into that sequence. There's no real. Uh, there's none of the window dressing that we, at least at the time that the movie came out, that we kind of expected out of superhero movies. There wasn't really any fanfare. There wasn't any sense that, okay, we're going to sit down for a good time with a comic book movie. It was just a very matter of fact, uh sequence of a guy in a grubby village who gets in a fight. <laughs> and that's really it. And the way that Nolan builds on that into Now, what has kind of become a cliche, sort of the gritty superhero film, is a lot like the origin story thing in that we're like, oh, you know, another one of these. But the reason we're like that is because Christopher Nolan started up his Nolan-verse Batman and kind of made it a cliche. Because before that, we hadn't really seen anything quite like the Batman Franchise from Nolan, we'd kind of seen more stylized takes like Rami's Spider-Man movies or Burton's Batman f- uh, films, but we hadn't really seen anything quite like these. And I think that that's why Batman Begins and The Dark Knight and that whole franchise really kind of survive is because there is sort of this the the excitement of seeing something new that you don't see as much in blockbuster filmmaking. That's so integral to the reason why Nolan is such a pleasure to watch when he's on his game is you don't see other blockbusters working in the same mode as his.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it really kind of boils down to uh, a simple question. What would it be like to see Batman in our world today? Not a stylized world, not a comic book world, but just our world and I think he, I think he really does nail that. And I'll have some things to say about the Dark Knight whenever it pops up. But uh, just, just the use of practical effects here in this superhero film—it just, it watching it, it just feels night and day from any of the MCU movies. It's, it's just really kind of, it's kind of strange. Uh, Kevin, I'm going to move on to my number three and. In my opinion, I think number one, two, and three, I think they're all five-star films. I really, really like them, and uh, I could probably switch them up any day of the week. Listeners who heard my uh, 10 or 11 through 20 uh, best films of the decade – podcast episode that we had for our Patreon listeners, uh, know that I had Inception in my top 20. And uh, that's my number three here, though. it, It could be number two any day of the week. I just finished watching this film today, and it's just so entertaining. But what struck me on this viewing with Inception is the idea of reality. And if we're thinking about how individuals bend reality, uh, we see that in Memento, we actually physically get to see how reality is bent in this dreamscape. And I think one of the questions at the heart of Inception is, what what is the nature of reality? And is reality what we make it out to be? What happens when we try to bend reality to our will? And can we just choose a reality to live? And in that, we see the dangers of this godlike ability to conform the world to our liking. And if we're talking about morally ambiguous characters, Leonardo DiCaprio's Cobb is a morally ambiguous character. He has a desire to get back to his family, but the things that he does in order to achieve that um, are gray at best. Uh, I also think about subconsciousness. And we've seen, even since this film was released 10 years ago, we've seen uh, this uh, emergence of subconscious studies and books that are written on how we are controlled, not necessarily by uh, the logic in our minds, uh, but our subconscious, our biases, our emotions. And I think we definitely see that here as ideas are spreading you know, they spread like viruses, as one character says. I also uh, am struck on this viewing uh, of how Nolan does this great job. And, and I, I'm sure you're going to disagree with me, Kevin. He does this great job of balancing all these storylines. And in my opinion, balancing the exposition-heavy nature of this film. And then when they get into the dream, we, we know kind of what they're going to do. We don't know how they're gonna do it. And so we're watching as their plan unfolds, but as their plan unfolds and we start to learn about it, their plans constantly change. Nothing goes according to plan. And so as an audience, we're trying to figure out what they were supposed to do, and then we're also trying to figure out how they're going to adapt to their changes in this space that we don't quite understand. I think it works like gangbusters, and I think it also makes for a great uh, makes for great repeated viewings. Uh, I've seen this film, I don't know, four or five times since it's been released, and I really do um, I enjoy it, and I, I feel like I, I learn more and more about it with each viewing. And so uh, there it lands uh, on my number three, Inception. So Saito, we can train your subconscious to defend itself from even the most skilled
1: extractor. How can I do that? Because I am the most skilled extractor. I know how to search your mind and find your secrets. I know the tricks, and I can teach them to you so that even when you're asleep, your defense is never down. Look, if you want my help, you're gonna have to be completely open with me. I need to know my way around your thoughts better than your wife, better than your therapist, better than anyone. If this is a dream and you have a safe full of secrets, I need to know what's in that safe. In order for this all to work, you need to completely let me in.
0: Enjoy your evening, gentlemen. As I consider your proposal.
1: Yeah, Inception is one of the films that I talked about uh, earlier when when I said that some that I had rated up higher uh, slipped a little bit when I revisited them for the purposes of this episode. And yeah, Inception is one of those. I, I still think that it more or less holds up. This it's still fun to kind of get lost into this incredibly intricate world of you know dream heists and kind of revisiting the the establishment of the rules can be enjoyable i i think this time around though the all of that exposition really seemed a lot more indigestible to me this time around i I found myself growing impatient with just how much nolan is obliged to stipulate on this on this reality simply so that the rules are in place so that later action will have some stakes and and make some sense to the audience. And I, I just think that that's not, that's not really where the heart of the story is. The heart of the story is kind of watching Cobb try to be reconciled to his past mistakes, his own failings and his desire to uh, kind of make sense of his reality a little bit more. Um, and that I think maybe gets drowned out a little bit by all of the 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 heist mechanics. It just it seems like Nolan is less interested in the heist story and more interested in the the human story. Essentially another memento only with it with dreams instead of short-term memory loss. I think though that he just he doesn't manage the balance between making this intricate plot sensible to the audience while also uh, delivering on those thematic interests. So it did slip a few p- spots for me. I think I have it at number seven now down from number four or five on, on my earlier list. So seven. it's still a good film. I still, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I it is what it is. I still like a lot about it. I love, I still love that middle uh, set piece with the shifting gravity fight in the hotel corridor, that is still even with all you can do in with special effects and movie making today. Watching that sequence is as thrilling as it was the day that I saw it ten years ago. It's just so it's so well choreographed. the The trick that Nolan pulls with the uh, rotating set, uh, I, I there's a featurette you can watch out there about how they actually shot it. That's incredibly interesting but it holds up a lot about it holds up it just didn't hold up quite as well as I wanted it to yeah
0: I mean I, I disagree on that expositional stuff but I mean yeah just watching that set rotate and once again his emphasis on practical effects just adds a tactile nature to that scene you would not get with with CGI and I, I think there are a number of different films on this list that rank, in the top 10 of, of personal movie-going experiences. If we're talking about best best experiences in the theater, because we haven't been able to go to the theater lately, this is one of those that's up there. I just remember uh, just almost grabbing my chest throughout this you know last third because of the nature of the story and because of the way that he weaves together four different storylines at once. I mean, it's just... Yeah, it it works for me, but um, yeah, it's a it's a great film. My number two actually was in my top ten of the decade. Like I said, I could probably switch this with uh, with Inception and be fine, but uh, it's Dunkirk. And I've talked about this film. We reviewed the film on our show. I mentioned it in my top ten. Listeners can kind of go back and 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 listen to what I have to say about that. Uh, this is a film that shows how versatile. Nolan is as a filmmaker. Uh, he can do heavy exposition. In my opinion, he does that mostly well. Uh, he can also do wordless poetry, and I, I think Inception um, would be the former, and Dunkirk would be the latter. This film also highlights what I think Nolan is exploring in every one of his films, and I don't know if, if people necessarily... Um, get this or will get this, but it just kind of sticks out to me. And I think he is a filmmaker who is interested in what it means to be virtuous. So if we're talking about virtue, we're talking about courage. We're talking about sacrifice. We're talking about morality. We're talking about love. We're talking about hope, and we're talking about justice. And those bedrock themes are all apparent in his movies. In particular, we, we learn about courage and sacrifice here. Uh, we've mentioned this a number of different times. I know that one of the criticisms that's leveled at Nolan uh, is that his characters are more chess pieces for the story, and, and, and possibly that, that, that could be the case. Uh, but these stories do gen- generate human emotion, and I think he really does nail that here in Dunkirk. If we're talking about what's a what's a perfect Nolan film, Dunkirk might be perfect in every single way, in every single aspect, and. Um, it's one of those that I, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about. I won't go on and on about, but it is my number two.
1: Yeah, this is at my number two as well. You know, uh, it's sad that a movie like Inception has to slip, but movies like Dunkirk and, and Insomnia benefit because they shot up in in my ranking as a result of that. I think Dunkirk has really sneakily uh, improved in in my opinion since I saw. I liked it quite a bit. The first time I saw it, but as time has passed, I've just come to respect more and more just how well Nolan orchestrates the shifting between the different uh, uh, storylines in Dunkirk and the way that he's able to do so purely through filmmaking, all of that. Uh, exposition indigestible exposition that I complained about with inception, where the the movie's over two hours and you sit through so much of just characters explaining what's going on to you. Dunkirk does seamlessly and mostly without dialogue. you you really get to know all of the characters in each of the the three storylines. You get to know kind of what their situation is pretty smoothly and Nolan gets in and out in less than two hours. It's just a really fleet experience. And in my opinion, I guess it's all the richer for it because you don't, it doesn't feel like the film is a Vox explainer of itself. It feels like it's a a film that is working on all levels of, of craft, of writing And I just think it's, it's really strong. And I wouldn't be surprised to see it sneaking up my best of the decade list eventually. Like it's, it's something that I really need to revisit to see just how, how strong it is. But yeah, there, there are sequences in Dunkirk that are among the best in Nolan's entire filmography. And it's, it's quite an achievement.
0: Oh, it's good to hear. I I feel like maybe i'm 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 starting to bend your will towards dunkirk i, I don't remember was it in, was it in your, <laughs> your top 10 that year i i can't remember it, um it
1: wasn't i think it, okay. it was less because i i didn't appreciate it more just there were other films that i liked that much more but i don't know maybe if i go back and and rewatch it i will find it cracking that list it's a, it's a, a movie of his that I feel like when people want to make fun of Nolan, they conveniently leave Dunkirk out of their you know tweaking him a little bit <laughs> because it doesn't really fit with the thesis. It the the whole like you know um, troubled man ha- uh, is struggling with guilt over uh, a dead wife and so he has an obsession because of that. Like that's nowhere to be found in Dunkirk. Over explaining it's nowhere to be found in Dunkirk. And this self-consciously brainy, cerebral style that Nolan's detractors argue that he tries to cultivate isn't really in Dunkirk. It's a film that works purely on feeling and craftsmanship. And uh, I, I think that's why it probably is rising to the top of his ranking for me, is that he he's shown just how versatile he is with a movie like this
0: yeah no i I like that it's well said it's as if he he read some of the negative reviews and was like okay well let's just do this and 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 show y'all yeah i'll (laughs) I'll
1: show i'll show you guys
0: (laughs) uh so my number one as listeners can probably surmise is uh the dark knight from 2008 probably the best theatrical experience that i've ever had it was it was incredible Uh, We reviewed this film on episode 165, so if listeners want to hear us talk about that, uh, and we actually rank the films from 2008 on that episode, check out 165. I was thinking about the two quote-unquote climaxes of the film. Uh, The first one is when the two ferry boats are faced with the decision of, you know, should we blow up the other one? And uh, one's filled with convicts, and one is filmed with just uh, people from—average people from the city. Uh, and Batman's chasing the Joker. So that's kind of the first conflict, and uh, the first climax. And then the next is uh, when Two-Face has Commissioner Gordon's family. So I don't know if, you, if, if a screenwriter would say, well, there are two climaxes. But th- those two kind of work really well if you're talking about the big moments towards the end of the film— and I was thinking about that, and of course there are all these ideas in terms of morality and right and wrong, uh, but I was thinking about when the last time I watched a superhero movie, a big, bold, huge superhero movie with such small moments towards the end. You know, aren't these huge fight scenes, uh, not a lot of CGI, it, it's it's more character-driven. Uh, and. You get that in *The Dark Knight*. I really do appreciate this film. I like it a lot, and um, it just—it goes back to what we were saying about the Batman films and how just different they are. And now, it feels like it's the norm, but it really was groundbreaking whenever you know whenever it happened. Batman! Batman! Why
2: is he Because we have to chase him. Okay, we're going in! Go, go!
0: Move! You didn't do anything wrong.
2: Because he's the hero Gotham deserves. But not the one it needs right now. So we'll hunt him.
1: Yeah, uh, the Dark Knight is my number four. And you're right that it's just has this this strange power that is partly due to Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker. But I think Nolan really, in the way that he marshals his collaborators work uh the the soundtrack is very good at ratcheting up the tension, the the cinematography, really the way that they shoot the city of Chicago. Uh, and as a Chicago resident, you know, I, I can maybe be permitted to be a little bit of a fanboy here, but I, I love the way that Chicago is shot in a way that it does seem recognizably real world. If, if you know Chicago, it's, you recognize landmarks, but it's not, uh, it's not just the real world. Like there's a way that Nolan creates this reality where it's grounded, but it's not like just your average, uh, You know, cop drama or your crime drama. This isn't Michael Mann's heat. This is something else. And I think that there's a reason why, for all of its flaws, and it does have a few, The Dark Knight is still so fondly remembered, is partly because of just that incredible performance from ledger but also the way that nolan really did kind of redefine the boundaries of the superhero genre and kind of showed new things you could do with that mode of storytelling, uh, I think it's it's really good.
0: Well, listeners, that is our countdown of the films of Christopher Nolan. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to send us your thoughts. What are your favorite Nolan films? What are your least favorite Nolan films? Once again, you can tweet us at cbeliefpod at cbeliefpod. You can also email us Seeing and Believing, C A P C at gmail.com kevin next week i'm excited we're talking about the films of kelly reichert i've got a couple to see and maybe one or two to rewatch, but i think that's going to be a fun episode
1: yeah there's of all the directors that we are are talking about uh in this series reichert is the one that i'm most looking forward to revisiting her work um there's a lot of good stuff in there, so it'll be it'll
0: be fun. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. Listeners, do not forget about next week's episode. It's going to be a good one. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristinPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLennathan, And until next time... This is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later.
1: You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes
2: and check out our other shows at christinpopculture.com network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.